It's lights out and away we go. Podcasting from Studio 2520, somewhere near Akron, Ohio, and live via the paid subscription of Zencaster, the campus of Otterbein University, Westerville, Ohio. This is Tackling the Chicane. From the Ford V Ferrari soundtrack, Polk, P-O-L-K, Salad Annie is the name of the track. Uh, I guess covered by Elvis at some point in the 70s, but just a really good car driving song that I kind of came across here in the last couple of days. Um, Of course, that movie is near and dear to my heart, so (laughs) why not start out with that? If there was ever a movie that's been uh, talked about more in the past few years by you, then I don't know, I'd be pretty surprised uh, more than Ford versus Ferrari, which I actually have not seen, so maybe you mm. have to change that at some point. But yes, you must watch. And Dad, if you're listening, you also must watch if you have not seen it. It's uh, a classic story of good versus evil, right? Correct. <laughs> if evil is Enzo Ferrari, as he is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But All right. Good stuff there. Yeah. Pod. <laughs> All right. Well, episode 58 of Tackling the Chicane, and we've got a good one coming up uh, tonight. Um, F1 returns stateside in Austin, Texas, to be exact, this time around at the Circuit of the Americas. Uh, it is a sprint weekend which maybe once we get into the the meat and potatoes here, we can maybe give a refresher course on uh, what a sprint weekend entails for some of our listeners, but uh, a different format from the regular uh, practice qualifying race format uh, that we usually see. So there's that. I'd also like to uh, touch on some new uh, added investment to the Alpine Renault uh, F1 team. Um, some names, uh, many uh, 
listeners should be familiar with uh, investing into that French team. Uh, And then on the soccer side of things, we're going to look at the international break that was for the United States men's national team, two friendlies against um, decently formidable opponents uh, in Germany and Ghana. Uh, And then I also want to dive into a new um, announcement from FIFA about the prospects of the 2030 World Cup, but we'll get into that uh, when the time comes. Um, I guess for now, let's start with the investment news, just because it's it's pretty cut and dry, but maybe you'll have a little bit of uh, something to say about it. But it was announced earlier in the week that Alpine, the French F1 team, formerly known as Renault, um, saw some new investment. So we know that Ryan Reynolds has gotten invested into the club recently, but, um, some new, more, uh, more American on top of some other, um, influence here. So, uh, let's see here. Alpine and Otro Capital, I'm reading this right off the F1 site, have welcomed some of the world's biggest sports stars as new strategic investors into their 200 million euro fund, including Patrick Mahomes, Travis Kelsey, uh, both of Kansas City Chiefs fame, Rory McIlroy, the golfer, Anthony Joshua, boxer, and Liverpool's uh, star right back, Trent Alexander-Arnold. So, Obviously, some big names in the mix there. What's your take on all of this? Quite interesting, actually. Um, you know, Ryan, if Ryan Reynolds attaches his name to anything, whether it be a mobile phone company or a race team, uh, people will follow. And I think this is kind of interesting in a way because you know now we've got the majority money coming from mostly american investors so this team i understand that it will always remain remain a, a french team but at at what point does this become uh haas uh times two right so is this mm-hmm. are they going to fly flags <laughs> for USA at some point do you think or um no <laughs> just because they do have that french identity and um kind of are trying to play into that um more and more it seems like of course the the investment group is largely american with a few uh, other nationalities involved there, but uh, no, I don't really see that being the case as long as the engine is a, a Renault and they Alpine is, I think, the sort of the, the performance sector of Renault. So I don't really see that changing. And of course, um, two French drivers as well right now so 
Um, no, I don't think they'll be flying any stars and stripes here anytime soon. But should be at least a small, maybe a three by five. Yeah. Well, speaking on that, of course, we're going to be stateside this week in Austin or this weekend. And uh, Red Bull and Haas will both be running special edition America themed liveries. I don't know if you saw any of them, but I did uh, see the Haas livery. Okay. Uh, I did not know that Red Bull, of course, you know, globally. Uh huh. Red it's, Bull will placate to wherever they're at. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. not uh, not anything to write home about, to be quite honest, but um, it was at least sort of interesting. And uh, also I read that Haas are bringing in some updates into this one that they're, I don't know, maybe quietly confident about. So I guess this kind of leads us into our Austin grand prix discussion here but what do you what are you looking for this weekend what are you excited about well i would like to see uh haas top 10 Mm -hmm. um i don't care which car it is just you know get into the points um you're on your home turf and with this being a sprint weekend at least maybe there's possibility that we could you know shine in the sprint race prior to the gp um this kind of kicks off a usa tour because i i don't have the schedule right in front of me but i'm sure that we're going to go from texas to uh vegas mm, incorrect we're going to texas to mexico city uh, to Brazil, then to Vegas. Vegas is the oh, penultimate geez. race. Yeah, okay. it it's a little weird that you'd go to Brazil and then Vegas, and not like Mexico City in Vegas or something like yeah. that. But yeah. it is a largely uh, greater America's final <laughs> final leg here. Well, at least we're in the same continent for that. So. Mm-hmm. Um, well, let's go to the circuit stats here. If we can, we'll just pull this down here. Uh, first GP, actually 10 years in now at Texas, 2012. 56 laps, course length is 5.5 and change for kilometers. The entire race distance is 308.4. Yeah, so, I mean, I guess what I'm kind of looking forward to is watching the potential drama for Red Bull. And let's just see. And listen, I'm not a Checo hater by any stand. But we'll just have to see if we if we have the same. Um, I don't know. It's just been so different between you know Perez and and Verstappen. 
are we going to see the same for the next, uh, you know, the final races of this year? Yeah, I don't, I don't know how that's going to play out. That's probably what I'm most interested in seeing on the grid right now. Now that we have the championship on constructors and drivers sorted, uh, I do think the most compelling story these last four races is what the hell is going to happen to Sergio Perez. Um, yeah, I know last week I kind of threw out the the rumor mill of potential retirement or something like that, and I don't know if that's really going to happen. Uh, it's totally just conjecture, but... I do think it is sort of a make-or-break situation here for the last four races for Sergio Perez. Um, And if for whatever reason, which is very, very possible that he relinquishes that uh, second place in the Drivers' Championship to Lewis Hamilton, let's say, um, I probably would guess that's going to be it for him at Red Bull. Well, it's a 30 point differential at this point between Hamilton at 194 and Perez at 224. Um but yeah, I mean the guy you can't fault the guy for being second in driver points. Mhm. I I don't think. I mean, uh yeah, he's had some rough goes, but I don't know. It's it's going to be up to Red Bull and how they want to kind of guide the team in the future. So are we looking at a potential Re- Ricardo return to Red Bull? Maybe. I don't know. Is that going yeah. to help? Is it going to hurt? I don't know, actually. I am not amazingly sold on Daniel Ricardo. Um, he actually is returning this week weekend, so we'll get a look and look at him and see what happens. But um, I do think if Red Bull is to get rid of Perez, then right now at least Ricardo would make the most sense to fill that seat um, at least for 2024, and then you can potentially um, you could see how it goes that season and then basically almost all of the grid is going to be out of contract at the end of next season so you'll have a lot to play with there but um yeah i do think it'll be daniel ricardo but if it's not perez but i don't know not super sold on him to be quite honest yeah i think he's he's had his personal struggles maybe potentially where he's you know has a family and you know these cars are on a knife's edge all the time and maybe he's thinking more of (laughs) i don't really want to i don't really want to be involved in something this you know it can be dangerous Mm mm-hmm so to speak. Um, I don't know. So I guess we'll kind of watch that. I don't 
obviously they're not going to make any uh, real super moves until the end of the season and then off season anything and can and will happen as far as that goes Mm -hmm. most definitely um in terms of the the format for this weekend so it's the the sprint weekend um which means that there is a quote-unquote points paying uh sort of mini race on saturday which is the sprint um i think is like a quarter race distance uh, and the top eight drivers will receive points there, which means Friday, so tomorrow as we record, um, will actually be qualifying for the Grand Prix on Sunday, which is a little confusing. So there's like one practice session, then qualifying, and then Saturday there's the sprint shootout and shoot it, and then the, uh, the sprint Sunday race. So, um, we know last time out, um, Oscar Piastri won the sprint race. Just wondering where you kind of stand on sprint weekends as a whole, because F1 made uh, quite a bit more of them this calendar, and you know I don't think they're going anywhere. Well, I'm a little confused as to what kind of value a sprint race brings to the entire weekend because it doesn't have any effect on the actual GP other than, like you said, and I was, I guess I should brush up, but so points earned in a sprint race um, are tabled points. Yeah. So, they count towards the standings. Okay. Yeah. What are, what are we, is it like ones and twos or? So I believe, I want to say it's the top eight get points and it goes eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. I'm pretty sure. Um, so it's not, this isn't exactly like uh, a huge, uh, uh, event, of course, it does allow for some of the smaller teams who can't really sustain uh, a, a winning or podium speed throughout an entire Grand Prix to get in the mix for some points, um, which I do think makes it pretty interesting. Um, and last year, which uh, they changed, the sprint results... Uh, acted as the starting grid for the GP. And this year they scrapped that. So there's the actual qualifying for the GP and the the sprint doesn't really impact the GP at all. So, yeah, I don't know how much value it has other than the fact that you see more racing in a weekend. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned McLaren. McLaren is coming. And they are kind of on the, the precipice of 2024. I mean, I see this team being very strong 
moving forward. Uh, I don't know what it's going to take to unseat Red Bull, mm-hmm. but Ferrari and Mercedes should be very cautious about how strong this McLaren team is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would agree. I think the big thing you need to be concerned about with McLaren is them getting it right at the beginning of the season because remember the first third of this season was pretty much a total shit show from them. Uh, they And they knew going in, which is a little confusing to me, but that they weren't going to have the uh, the pace or competitive car. And then they've been slowly making it better and better. Um, so I do think McLaren will be a contender uh, at least for more of the season than they were this season. But uh, I think it does weigh heavily on how well they can start a campaign too, which they haven't really shown to do quite well at this yeah, point. Yeah, but I think they're going to they're going to kind of leap off of the end of this year, mm-hmm. hopefully. Um, I mean, you know, for us as fans, we all, maybe I'm wrong, but I always want to see somebody unseat the, the, the person who has dominated, you know, for so long uh-huh. and not so long, but we, we, we dipped into this kind of post Mercedes yeah. <laughs> dominance. Um, but yeah, it's, we're under, I'm an un- underdog rooter, I guess. Kind of sounds strange, but. You know, I'd love to see somebody come up and just, you know, at least be competitive to the fact that we we don't see the same guy running away all the time. Mm-hmm. So, I guess we'll, we shall see. Yeah, what happens with that? Uh, what do you expect from this this particular weekend? Any uh. Maybe a driver you think might do well, or a team, or because we know who's well, going to win, I, probably. I think you get you're gonna we're gonna have to watch qualifying is kind of the litmus test, mm-hmm. so we'll see how that runs, and then uh, sprint race. But um, I think Hamilton is due to be. Uh, P2, I won't say P1. Um, and then I think we have to watch McLaren and Piastri. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would pretty much agree with that. I do think Mercedes, uh, who I believe are bringing some upgrades to this one, should be definitely interesting. Uh, and they have kind of had a nice bit of form going into the sort of end of the season here. Um, of course, McLaren have been solid for a while now. I am kind of hoping Haas can pull something together. We'll see. <laughs> That's always more of a uh, you'll believe it when you see it type deal. I always have hope. Mm-hmm. 
but then I have real expectations, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, flying yeah. the flag. So hopefully that, that does something. Yeah. Yeah. We shall see on that one. Um, yeah, really think that just about does it for, uh, the, the preview here, unless you have anything else F1 related, but, uh, it should be a compelling race, I would think at Austin. And then we will be in Mexico city, I believe the week after. So should be interesting. Yeah, no, I'm, I think we're, we covered F1. So, yeah. The race, uh, 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, so uh, don't have to be up at the uh, crack of dawn. Qualifying Friday, um, let's see, it's going to be 5 p.m., I believe, Eastern Standard, so a little bit of uh, prime time action, I guess, almost, dinner time action uh, for F1, so eastern standard that is all right so i think that'll pretty much do it for the f1 side of things so i think we'll move on to soccer here um and we will be diving into two united states men's national team friendlies here uh the first one that was uh saturday uh versus germany and then the friendly that was played Tuesday night against Ghana. Uh, Different bits of fortune there for the U.S. Uh, Before we get into that, just want to touch on the 2030 World Cup hosts announcement. Uh, And ladies and gentlemen and my co-host, please feel free to strap in because this is going to going to be hard to follow. So um, it has been announced that the World Cup 2030 edition, so not the one coming up, but the one after, um, will be hosted by Spain, Portugal, and Morocco. So it's a a joint bid here. Um, The two Iberian Peninsular countries and then Morocco, who you know your geography closely, almost touches Spain on the north of Africa there. Um, okay, on the surface, maybe not so uh, not so bad, I guess. Um, well, let's add in the fact that um, Argentina, Uruguay, and Paraguay uh, will be each hosting one match apiece in the World Cup uh, because FIFA wanted to throw a bone to South America because the 2030 edition will be the 100th anniversary of the World Cup and the first World Cup was held in Uruguay. So if you're, if you're scoring at home, that's six host nations, uh, three continents and one ocean separating the tournament. Um, so if you can't tell, uh, I'm being a little bit, um, tart because, uh, this is stupid, 
um, six nations hosting, three of them hosting one game uh, is really dumb. Um, <laughs> just logistically, like, that makes zero sense. So you're going to have teams playing a match and then being on a tight deadline to the next match and then flying across an entire ocean to their next game. And that's pretty much a mess, right? So, well, let's deep, let's dive a little further into the weeds here. And um, if you're following, Africa, Europe, and South America are being represented in that tournament. So FIFA has like a rule where if, uh, for example, the U.S., Mexico, and Canada, but mostly just the U.S., uh, are hosting the next World Cup. So the 2030 edition cannot go to a North American host because you can't have two in a row type thing. Um, so they needed someone not from that uh, confederation. Well, this one, this 2030 edition knocks out three confederations, um, Europe, Africa, South America, and then they're not going to, obviously, for 2034, they're not going to give uh, one to uh, CONCACAF, which is North America. So who does that open up the door to, and who they basically, FIFA, has been conspiring with for... Uh, a while now to host the 2034 edition Saudi Arabia <laughs> yeah uh, so uh, we know and I uh, probably eight or nine episodes ago now did a deep dive into the whole Saudi Arabia uh, football thing where they're spending a shitload of money on players and uh, I guess trying to put the Saudi Arabia footballing scene on the map um, and also trying to make people associate Saudi Arabia not with dictatorship and killing people to uh, uh, soccer. Um, so basically the 2030 edition, which has six host nations, um is a giant ploy uh, for FIFA to basically hand the World Cup to Saudi Arabia, who uh, I just a even a very low depth of knowledge uh, would allow you to understand that that's not really a place that is fit to host a World Cup or should uh, host a World Cup. Uh, for a number of different reasons, but money rules everything, and that's pretty much all FIFA cares about. So here's my so, rant. World Cup is, is it like the Olympics where we're four-year? Mm -hmm. Every four years. Schedule. So. Yeah. So last year, as you will remember, of course, we had the 2022 edition in Qatar. The 2026 edition is in the United States, Canada, and Mexico, uh, mostly the United States. Um, and then, of course, the 2030 edition. Be hosted. 
uh, uh, there's like 17 cities hosting um, from a perspective of being uh, in Studio 2520, uh, somewhere near Akron, Ohio. Um, the closest one host city is probably Philadelphia or Chicago, I think. Um, so nothing super local. Um, but yeah, basically this was just been a giant rant to tell the listeners probably what they already know that FIFA is not a super morally just, uh, institution. And, um, yeah, don't be surprised when, uh, you get the announcement that the 2034 edition of the world cup will be in Saudi Arabia. That is, I will be uh, 60, 63 and possibly retiring. Yeah, I mean, hey, oh, maybe maybe if you're retired, you can jet out there and go watch. <laughs> <laughs> Living it up. So, yeah, that was, uh, that was my rant, but I, I should at least be aware of what, that situation, I think. Uh, it's important to keep asking questions of the powers that be at FIFA because they make a lot of very, very stupid decisions, uh, right. usually because well, of money. They, they clearly don't care about anything politically speaking. They mm-hmm. It's much like most of the sports in the USA. It's a money grab. Yeah. Basically, yeah. That is at the foundation of everything that FIFA does, which uh, makes makes being a soccer fan annoying from time to time. But so be it, I guess. What can we do about it other than uh, complain? So let's move on to, I guess, some more positive uh, stuff and the October uh, men's national team camp for the U S two matches went on over the past week or so of the international break for the United States. The first match was in East Hartford, Connecticut uh, against Germany. And then the um, Tuesday match against Ghana, um, and we'll kick it off with the, the Germany match, um, which this one, sort of a classic tale of two halves thing. Um, so Germany end up winning three to one, but um, it was actually a great start from the U.S. Uh, in the first half. Also, I just want to say shout out to East Hartford, Connecticut, of all uh, towns for basically filling up an entire 40,000 seater stadium for a friendly. We got to respect that. I'll take a quick aside here for half a second and I will see you in a second. All right. So I'll go ahead and just dive into some lineup uh, technicalities here. Uh, Basically for this match, it was, um, I would say, both 
U- the United States and Germany playing their best teams available to them at the moment. So Germany uh, wind up in a 4-4-2. You had Marc-Andre Ter Stegen in goal, um, the Barcelona keeper. Uh, Robin Gosens, Antonio Rudiger, Mats Hummels, and Jonathan Ta making up the back four. Um, Jamal Musiala, Pascal Gross, uh, Ilkay Gundogan, Florian Wirtz in the midfield, and then Nicholas Fulkrug, uh, who was ended up being quite a large player in this match, and Leroy Sané uh, making up the front line. All of that to say, um, for maybe our seasoned German soccer veterans in the crowd, a uh, pretty strong lineup from Germany. And on the United States end of things, it was what I would say is just about full strength for the U.S. So you had Matt Turner in goal, Joe Scally, Chris Richards, Tim Ream, and Serginho Dest making up the back line. Giovanni Reyna, Eunice Musa, and Weston McKennie in midfield. And then Tim Weah, Florin Balogun, and Christian Pulisic making up the front line. And like I said, a pretty hot start from the U.S. in this one, all things considered. Um, I really just want to say I this goes for the entire camp over the course of both games, but uh, Christian Pulisic and Tim Weah uh, looked very, very strong in this one. Yeah, I mean, um, what I took away from this match was uh, our keeper sort of kept things in check. I mean, uh, we had Pulisic shoots really early in like the ninth minute, no goal. Uh, then Germany off the post a few minutes later. Uh, a lot of decent shots by this USA team mm-hmm. in the first half, but um, really couldn't get a whole lot going as far as, you know, I, I I think we saw a lot of back and forth play a little I don't I hate to use the word ticky tack football but uh, a good save in the 22nd by the USA keeper again mm-hmm. uh, and then I mean another four minutes later uh, and then that kind of leads us to the kind of the hopeful goal by Pulisic uh, in, I believe it was around the 26th or 7th minute, so in their first half. Yeah, so first things first, I do want to say it was interesting, or not interesting, but good play from Matt Turner, the U.S. keeper, who kept out uh, a few shots, like you mentioned early on. He still is pretty solidly our best keeper, I think, um, and is getting a lot of good minutes with Nottingham Forest in the Premier League. Um, 
going into that goal, which I wouldn't say goes against the run of play, but Germany probably had the better looks going into it. Um, right before that, like a minute before, if you remember, Polisic uh, basically has a, a beautiful breakaway opportunity where he holds on to the ball too long and Ter Stegen just kind of sweeps him away. And I was really kind of upset with that when I was watching because it was a great goal-scoring opportunity. And sometimes I feel like Pulisic just tries to do a bit too much in those situations. But then one minute later, uh, a beautiful goal, a bending shot into the back of the net makes it 1-0 to the U.S. And I, I, a goal that uh, will definitely be remembered for a while, I think, by some U.S. fans because just incredibly well done from Pulisic. Well, and I was really disappointed. Um, I did not expect Germany to equalize so quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it wasn't quickly. It's probably 15 or 18 minutes later, but still, I didn't expect that. Just based on the the rhythm of play yeah. in the game, I didn't really think they were going to come back and and equalize before the half. So I was a little disappointed. Yeah, no, I agree, because it did actually feel kind of comfortable for the U.S. once they took the lead. Uh, there, of course, Matt Turner had to make a few saves, like you mentioned, but never felt like Germany was, you know, tearing down the the wall of the defense or anything like that. Um, But I think it does speak to the quality of the opposition. Obviously it's Germany, (laughs) maybe not the strongest German side you've seen in a while. In fact, maybe one of the weaker ones, but a weak German side is, is still fantastic at the end of the day. So what, what is really important in, uh, a good thing about playing quality opposition is that even when you score on them, um, they don't take themselves out of the game. Uh, they they have the quality to get back into games quite quickly. And it only took 12 minutes for Ilkay Gundogan uh, to score for Germany. This one I did kind of feel like a bit self-inflicted from the U.S., it was definitely a bit of a mess defensively that allows Leroy Sané to drive through the defense. Um, and he has a back and forth between Gundogan before eventually it's just too much for the defense uh, to to take. And it, it's 1-1. Uh, we kind of head into halftime there. Um, and I would say, you know, if you look at it from a 45-minute perspective, it was a pretty quality half of soccer for the U.S. I thought Gio Reyna especially looked pretty explosive. There were moments when um, Tim Weah was burning defenders uh, with his speed on the right wing. So I was pretty happy with the first half. Um, unfortunately, like what happens in a lot of friendlies, is a lot of changes are made at halftime, substitutions kind of steals the the momentum and rhythm out of the game and 
uh, I think it's fair to say the second half, not so great from the U.S. So we had another great save in really early in the second half by Turner. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't particularly recall the play, but <clears throat> he was, you know, on it. Yeah. And then in the 58th, because time goes by so quickly in these matches, uh, we had a, another score for the German team. And then now you start thinking, okay, this could, uh, this could be not good or, it, you know, you kind of, you kind of feel the momentum mm-hmm. of the German team uh, in the 58th, 2-1. And then I did not expect to see a third goal by Germany in this match. But. Yeah. Yeah, the wheels definitely sort of fell off for the U.S. in the uh, defensively especially. So Nicholas... Fulkrug, uh, who's in fantastic form for Borussia Dortmund, uh, again, uh, using some German football expertise here. So a bit out of the jurisdiction of TTC, but a really compelling league if you haven't delved into it. But uh, Nicholas Fulkrug, uh, who was saved multiple times by Matt Turner, finally gets his goal to make it 2-1. And then, yeah, three minutes later, um, it's Jamal Musiala, who is a very young player. I think he's 18 or 19, 20 at the oldest. Plays for Bayern Munich in Germany, the the juggernauts that they are. Um, One of the best young players and honestly just one of the best players in the game right now. Uh, He scores the third for Germany, he plays and dribbles through basically the entire U.S. defense, which kind of shows that there still is definitely a gap in quality between the U.S. and some of the more elite uh, European squads who ultimately you're trying to compete with in terms of winning, you know, World Cups and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it, the ball's deflected. Uh, it finds Nicholas Fulkrug, who then gives gives it to Musiala to basically tap it in home. Um, after that, not much, not much steam left in the game. I think you know both teams sort of just content on maybe not content, but understanding that that was probably that, and it's a friendly, so you're not going to see balls to the walls for the rest of it. Well, I think there was a late uh, PK for the U.S. team. Mm-hmm. It was free kick, they, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. They couldn't. Couldn't convert that one. Yeah, no. It was uh, Brendan Aronson who, uh, you know, had to get in a good position to get awarded that foul in the 91st minute. Uh, unfortunately, tight angle fires the shot right into the right into the wall but i'm trying to remember outside of the world cup i don't think we've covered the u.s playing an elite 
national team. So I did kind of just want to hear your thoughts of where you think this U.S. team is in terms of like its development and its ability to play against good teams. Well, it kind of depends on the match that you're watching. So versus Germany, um, a lot of holes in the bucket, right? Mm-hmm. So to say. Uh, I can't help but look at the USA versus Ghana match that we watched and they seem like a completely different team. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if, if, so give me a little background on Ghana as mm-hmm. a team. Are, are they weak? Are they good? Are they decent? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It just between the two matches, uh, totally different USA team. Yeah. So I will say Ghana has been better in the past. Um, the the current iteration of Ghana is attacking wise actually pretty damn good so uh inyaki williams is quite he's a very gifted player for athletic athletic bilbao in spain thomas party uh is in the plays in the midfield of the arsenal team who we know are flying high right now um andre or jordan ayu plays for crystal palace in the premier league um, so by no means are, is this team uh, bad. In, in fact, I think they're a, 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 maybe a tier two African nation, not, not necessarily um, a Morocco or uh, a Senegal or an Egypt or anything like that, but they're definitely a team that is um, pretty good. I will say in it doesn't really take much of a doesn't take uh, too close of a look at this match to show you that defensively they're a disaster. Um, they they did not really ever challenge the United States um, defensively in we saw that in the first half, which is basically just the entire game that really mattered. Um, the United States did whatever the hell they wanted at all times. So um, in terms of the lineup, it was uh, a few changes. Um, so Miles Robinson slotted in for Tim Ream. Uh, Christopher Lund, who has only played for the U.S. I think two or three times now, um, slotted in at uh, left back, and then Johnny Cardoso started in the midfield in place of Weston McKenney. And we saw, and I didn't think this was going to be the case, but we saw right away that Ghana had no answer for the U.S. attack. Um, Serginho Dest on the on the right wing, well, right right back but he was getting in super advanced positions he was doing whatever he wanted and Gio Reyna 
kicks off the scoring just 10 minutes into this game. Um, Dest drives down the pitch, finds Fuller and Balogun, squares it. It deflects off a Ghana player, but right to the foot of Gia Arena, makes it 1-0. And uh, I think you could pretty much see where this match was going uh, right from there. Well, and then we had the PK Polisic, um probably 10 minutes after the first goal. And then when you're 2 nil, now you start, you know, the train. Yeah, especially in a friendly where it seemed to me like Ghana had no interest in being there, which is honestly kind of fair. They've got bigger fish to fry coming up with the uh, the Africa Cup of Nations in the in the winter, uh, the winter here. Um, so that's a big tournament for them. I will be honest, I'm not sure how much they are caring about the October international window of friendlies, um, but in, we can only really view it from the American lens, which is it's opportunities to uh, keep kind of building our squad and playing at least semi-formidable opponents. Um, but yeah, uh, Polisic rolling um, scores that penalty quite easily. That Tim Weah wins. They had no answer for Tim Weah. Um, and then just two minutes later, this goal was fantastic, by the way. Fuller and Balligan, who I am really... Real beauty. Yeah. That was a beauty. <laughs> I mean... Yeah. I'm so glad as just a fantastic goal. Mm-hmm. So Balogun receives the ball in the box, turns, spin moves the defender, almost American football esque. Spin moves the defender, slams it off the post and in. Um, basically, this goal is just created out of the press that. The U.S. were running on Ghana, uh, not giving them much time in the ball, flustering them, it's fair to say. But yeah, Balogun, just, we desperately needed a striker who could just have actual technical ability and could score goals like that. Uh, And we got it. I also have a note here. What the hell is on the Ghana's keeper's head. Oh, the, uh, the, the, the cap, the, uh, yeah. So he had like like a, did he have some kind of issue (laughs) or I don't know if it's like that necessarily, but I think I know we were leaning there, but, uh, it was, I've seen it before. So they'll wear like a padded cap, uh, I'm assuming in past in the past in his career, he probably had a rather severe head injury, and that's why. Um, it's not super common, but I have seen it before on keepers. So yeah, he was dressed like a hockey. If you looked at his pads, <laughs> like I've never seen a, a soccer. Keeper with so much protection. 
Yeah. He was he he needed it, unfortunately, for him because they were getting drilled by the US in that first half. So yeah. Now I Yeah, it was sort of like a helmet in that sense. Um again, probably the best forty five minutes I've seen out of Serginho Dest in a United States jersey and then this was an interesting one, so I almost guarantee you haven't seen this happen before. An indirect free kick inside of the penalty box. So what happened in the 38th minute? Um, another breakaway happens for the United States, and then the Ghana defender just kind of, uh, once he challenges for the ball, just kind of sits on the ball. He like sits down on it and doesn't allow for Balogun to even play it. So the the referee awarded a free kick inside of the penalty box. So not a penalty kick, a free kick, um, which you don't really see that often. Like and, yeah. yeah, it only happens um, for really weird things, and that was one of them. So it set up a very unique situation where Gio Reyna – uh, from about five yards away, uh, was able to just blast a shot in to make it three nothing, and there's basically nothing you can do to defend that. Yeah. So this it was a fun match to watch. Mm-hmm. Obviously, when there's that much action and that much uh, goal scoring, much better than some of the matches I've had to watch. Uh-huh. I was yeah. I was actually really, really concerned heading into this one. I thought it was going to be a classic snooze fest where both teams don't really care to play this one because it's a friendly in the middle of the club season. And to be honest, these players are probably a bit more concerned about their clubs than their national team at the moment. And yeah. Honestly, I am too as a fan. So I was a little concerned this one was going to be very, very dry, especially with the uh, rather sparse crowd in Nashville for this one. Uh, might not see Nashville host too many U.S. soccer games for a while. Um, but it actually ended up for 45 minutes being a pretty entertaining watch. Are you happy with the... USA coach? Um, I would say right now, um, content, not necessarily happy. Don't that since he's been rehired, there haven't, hasn't really been, uh, super meaningful matches to where I, you can gauge how the project is moving along super well, other than the fact that he, the style of play is much better. It does seem like there is a system. Uh, There was quite a bit of pressing going on and organized pressing at that in both matches. Um, Playing Gio Reyna in the midfield, which is what fans have been calling for for years at this point now. And he's finally doing that, which is nice. And just the added bonus of we recruited Balogun last year, got him in, or I guess it was in the summer. Um, 
and he's working. Yeah, he he's old as well. Yeah, and he's working out quite well. Um, all of this is building towards next summer, which is going to be a big one. So the Copa America is coming to the United States, and that that is traditionally a South American uh, only tournament. It basically crowns the best national team in South America, but they uh, are hosting it in the U.S., and because of that, uh, some CONCACAF teams have been invited to compete in that tournament. So uh, you'll see the U.S. stack up against the likes of Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay, Chile, all of those. So it should be really exciting next summer. Um, so I'm definitely looking forward to that, and that's kind of what we're building to at the moment. All right. So another international break done and dusted, which means we turn our focus back to the club game. Um, so we'll have two club matches uh, ready to roll for next week um, in the Premier League in Scotland, respectively. So looking forward to that. And then, of course, uh, the... Uh, Austin Grand Prix at the Circuit of the Americas in F1 as well. So it should be a good weekend. Yeah, for sure. Well, I guess uh, that caps it, right? Yep, that, that'll do it for me. Shall we get gone? Indeed. For executive producers, Richard Tanaka, Logan Motes, and Brandon Stiles. This has been Tackling the Chicane, copyright 2023. We will see you next time.